Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochre. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today, Eleanor shows us around her humble abode and then tells us about a literature-inspired meal. December 1st, 1911. Dear Mrs. Coney, I feel just like visiting tonight, so I'm going to play like you have come. It is so good to have you to chat with. Please be seated in this low rocker. It is a present to me from the Pattersons, and I am very proud of it. I am just back from the Patterson Ranch, and they have a dear little boy who came the 20th of November, and they call him Robert Lane. I am sure this room must look familiar to you, for there is so much in it that was once yours. I have two rooms, each 15 by 15, but this one on the south is my really room, and in it are my treasures. My house faces east and is built up against a side hill, or should I say hillside. Anyway, they had to excavate quite a lot. I had them dump the dirt right before the house and terrace it smoothly. I have sown my terrace to California poppies, and around my porch, which is six feet wide and 30 long, I have planted wild cucumbers. Every log in my house is as straight as pine can grow. Each room has a window and a door on the east side, and the south room has two windows on the south, with space between for my heater, which is one of those with a grate front so I can see the fire burn. It is almost as good as a fireplace. The logs are unhewed outside because I like the rough finish, but inside the walls are perfectly square and smooth. The cracks in the walls are snugly filled with daubing, and then the walls are covered with heavy gray building paper, which makes the room very warm, and I really like the appearance. I had two rolls of wallpaper with a bold rose pattern. By being very careful, I was able to cut out enough of the roses, which are divided in their choice of color as to whether they should be red, yellow, or pink, to make a border about 18 inches from the ceiling. They brighten up the wall, and the gray paper is fine to hang pictures upon. Those you have sent us make our room very attractive. The woodwork is stained a walnut brown, oil finish, and the floor is stained and oiled just like it. In the corners by the stove and before the windows, we take our comfort. From some broken bamboo fishing rods, I made frames for two screens. These I painted black with some paint that was left from the buggy, and Gavotte fixed the screens so they will stay balanced and put casters in for me. I had a piece of blue curtain calico, and with brass-headed tacks, I put it on the frame of Jereen's screen. Then I mixed some paste and let her decorate it to suit herself on the side that should be next her corner. She used the cards you sent her. Some of the people have a suspiciously tottering appearance, perhaps not so very artistic, but they all mean something to a little girl whose small fingers worked patiently to attain satisfactory results. She has a set of shelves on which her treasures of china are arranged. On the floor is a rug made of two goatskins dyed black, a present from Gavotte, who heard her admiring Zebby's bearskin. She has a tiny red rocking chair, which she has outgrown, but her rather dilapidated family of dolls use it for an automobile. For a seat for herself, she has a small hassock that you gave me, and behind the blue screen is a world apart. 
My screen is made just like Jereen's, except the cover is cream material with sprays of wild roses over it. In my corner, I have a cot made up like a couch. One of my pillows is covered with some checked gingham that Dawsey stitched for me. I have a cabinet bookcase made from an old walnut bedstead that was a relic of the Mountain Meadow Massacre. Gavotte made it for me. In it, I have a few of my books, some odds and ends of China, all gifts, and a few fossil curios. For a floor covering, I have a braided rug of blue and white made from old sheets and Jereen's old dresses. In the center of my room is a square table made of pine and stained brown. Over it is a table cover you gave me. Against the wall near my bed is my dresser. It is a box with shelves and is covered with the same material as my screen. Above it I have a mirror, but it makes ugly faces at me every time I look into it. Upon the wall nearby is a match holder that you gave me. It is the heads of two fisherfolk. The man has lost his nose, but the old lady still thrusts out her tongue. The material on my screen and dresser I bought for curtains, then decided to use some white crossbar I had. But I wish I had not, for every time I look at them, I think of poor little Mary Ann Parker. I'm going to make you a cup of tea and wonder if you will see anything familiar about the teapot. You should, I think, for it is another of your many gifts to me. Now I feel that you have a fairly good idea of what my house looks like, on the inside anyway. The magazines and Jereen's cards and Mother Goose book came long ago, and Jereen and I were both made happy. I wish I could do nice things for you, but all I can do is to love you. Your sincere friend, Eleanor Rupert. February 12, 1912. Dear Mrs. Coney, this time I want to tell you about a stocking leg dinner which I attended not long ago. It doesn't sound very respectable, but it was one of the happiest events I ever remember. Mrs. Lauderer was here visiting us, and one afternoon we were all in the kitchen when Gavotte came skimming along on the first pair of snowshoes I ever saw. We have had lots of snow this winter, and many of the hollows and gullies are packed full. Gavotte had no difficulty in coming, and he had come for the mail and to invite us to a feast of zihos. I could not think of what kind of a dinner it could be, and I did not believe that Mr. Stewart would go. But after Gavotte had explained how much easier it was now than at any other time because the hard-packed snow made it possible to go with bobsleds, I knew he would go. I can't really say I wanted to go, but Mrs. Lauderer took, for, took it for granted that it would be delightful so she and Mr. Stewart did the planning. Next morning, Gavotte met Mrs. O'Shaughnessy and invited her. Then, taking the mail, he went on ahead to blaze a trail we should follow with the sleds. We were to start two days later. They planned we could easily make the trip in a day, as with the gulches filled with snow, shortcuts were possible. And we could travel at a good pace, as we would soon have, as we would have a strong team. To me, it seemed dangerous, but dinner parties have not been so plenty that I could miss one. So when the day came on which we were to start, we were up betimes and had a mess box packed, and Mr. Stewart had a big pile of rocks hot. We all wore our warmest clothes, and the rest carried out hot rocks and blankets, while I put the kitchen in such order 
that the men left to feed the stock would have no trouble in getting their meals. Mr. Stewart carried out the mess box, and presently we were off. We had a wagon box on bobsleds, and the box was filled with hay and hot rocks and blankets on top and more to cover us. Mr. Stewart had two big bags of grain in front, feed for the horses, and he sat on them. It was a beautiful day, and we jogged along merrily. We had lots of fun, and as we went a new way, there was much that was new to Mrs. O'Shaughnessy and myself, and it was all new to the rest. Gavat had told us where we should noon, and we reached the place shortly after twelve. Mr. Stewart went to lift out the mess box, but he had forgotten to put it in. Oh, dear. We were disappointed a lot. I don't think I was ever so hungry, but there was nothing for it but to grin and bear it. It did me some good, though, to remember how a man misses his dinner. The horses had to be fed, so we walked about while they were eating. We went up a canyon that had high cliffs on one side and came to a place where, high up on the rock wall, in great, back le- great black letters, was this legend, quote, Dick fell off this here cliff and died, end quote. I should think there would be no question that anyone who fell from that place onto the boulders below would die. Soon we started again, and if not quite so jolly as we were before, at least we looked forward to our supper with a keen relish, and the horses were urged faster than they otherwise would have been. The beautiful snow is rather depressing, however, when there is snow everywhere. The afternoon passed swiftly, and the horses were becoming jaded. At four o'clock it was almost dark. We had been going up a deep canyon and came upon an appalling sight. There had been a snowslide, and the canyon was half filled with snow, rock, and broken trees. The whole way was blocked, and what to do we didn't know, for the horses could hardly be gotten along and we could not pass the snowslide. We were 25 miles from home, night was almost upon us, and we were almost starved. But we were afraid to stay in the canyon lest more snow should slide and bury us, so sadly we turned back to find as comfortable a place as we could to spend the night. The prospects were very discouraging and I am afraid we were all near tears, when suddenly there came upon the cold air a clear blast from a horn. Mrs. Lauderer cried, quote, Ach, der Reveille, end quote. Once I heard a lecturer tell of climbing the Matterhorn, and the calls we heard brought his story to mind. No music could have been so beautiful. It soon became apparent that we were being signaled, So we drove in the direction of the sound and found ourselves going up a wide canyon. We had passed the mouth of it shortly before we had come to the slide. Even the tired horses took new courage, and every few moments a sweet, clear call put new heart into us. Soon we saw a light. We had to drive very slowly and in places barely crept. The bugler changed his notes and we knew he was wondering if we were coming. So, Mr. Stewart hellowed. At once we had an answer, and after that we were steadily guided by the horn. Many times we could not see the light, but we drove in the right direction because we could hear the horn. At last, when it was quite dark and the horses could go no further, 
we drew up before the fire that had been our beacon light. It was a bonfire built upon a point of rock at the end of the canyon. Back from it, among the pines, was an adobe house. A dried-up mummy of a man advanced from the fire to meet us, explaining that he had seen us through his field glasses and, knowing about the snowslide, had ventured to attract us to his poor place. Carlota Juanita was within, prepared for the senoras, if they would but walk in. If they would. More dead than alive, we scrambled out, cold stiffened and hungry. Carlota Juanita threw open the low, wide door and we stumbled into comfort. She hastened to help us off with our wraps, piled more wood on the open fire, and busied herself to make us well welcome and comfortable. Poor Carlota Juanita. Perhaps you think she was some slender, limpid-eyed, olive-cheeked beauty. She was fat and forty, but not fair. She had the biggest wad of hair that I ever saw, and her face was so fat that her eyes looked beady. She wore an old, heelless pair of slippers or sandals that would hardly stay on, and at every step they made the most exasperating sliding noise, but she was all kindness and made us feel very welcome. The floor was of dirt, and they had the largest fireplace I have ever seen, with the widest, cleanest hearth, which was where they did their cooking. All their furniture was homemade, and on a low bench near the door were three water jars which, I am sure, were handmade. Away back in the corner they had a small altar, on which was a statue of Mary and the child. Before it, suspended by a wire from the rafters, was a cow's horn in which a piece of punk was burning, just as incense is kept burning in churches. Supper was already prepared and was simmering and smoking on the hearth. As soon as the men came in, Carlota Juanita put it on the table, which was bare of cloth. I can't say that I really like Mexican bread, but they certainly know how to cook meat. They had a most wonderful pot roast with potatoes and corn dumplings that were delicious. The roast had been slashed in places and small bits of garlic, pepper, bacon, and I think parsley inserted. After it and the potatoes and the dumplings were done, Carlota poured in a can of tomatoes. You may not think that was good, but I can assure you it was, and we did ample justice to it. After we had eaten until we were hardly able to swallow, Carlota Juanita served a queer Mexican pie. It was made of dried buffalo berries, stewed, and made very sweet. A layer of batter had been poured into a deep baking dish, then the berries, and then more batter. Then it was baked and served hot with plenty of hard sauce and it was powerful good, too. She had very peculiar coffee with goat's milk in it. I took mine without the milk, but I couldn't make up my mind that I liked the coffee. We sat around the fire drinking it when Manuel Pedro Felipe told us many interesting things about it. He and Carlota Juanita spoke fairly good English. They had lived for many years in their present home and had some sheep, a few goats, a cow or two, a few pigs, and chickens and turkeys. They had a small patch of land that Carlota Juanita tilled on and on which was raised the squaw corn that hung in bunches from the rafters. Down where we live, we can't get sweet corn to mature, but here, so much higher up, they have a sheltered little nook where they are able to raise many things. 
Upon a long shelf above the fire was an ugly old stone image, the bottom broken off and some plaster applied to make it set level. The ugly thing they had brought with them from some old ruined temple in Mexico. We were all so very tired that soon Carlota Juanita brought us out an armful of the thickest, brightest rugs and spread them over the floor for us to sleep upon. The men retired to a lean-to room where they slept, but not before Manuel Pedro Philippe and Carlota had knelt before their altar for their devotions. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy and myself and Jereen, knowing the rosary, surprised them by kneeling with them. It is good to meet with kindred faith away off in the mountains. It seems there could not possibly be a mistake when people so far away from the creeds and doctrines hold to the faith of their childhood and find the practice a pleasure after so many years. The men bade us good night, and we lost no time in settling ourselves to rest. Luckily, we had plenty of blankets. Away in the night, I was awakened by a noise that frightened me. All was still, but instantly there flashed through my mind tales of murdered travelers, and I was almost paralyzed with fear when again I heard that stealthy, sliding noise, just like Carlota Juanita's old slippers. The fire had burned down, but just then the moon came from behind a cloud and shone through the window upon Carlota Juanita, who was asleep with her mouth open. I could also see a pine bough, which was scraping against the wall outside, which was perhaps making the noise. I turned over and saw the punk burning, which cast a dim light over the serene face of the Blessed Virgin. So all fear vanished, and I slept as long as they would let me in the morning. After a breakfast of tortillas, cheese, and rancid butter, and some more of the coffee, we started again for the stocking leg dinner. Carlota Juanita stood in the door, waving to us as long as we could see her, and Manuel P.F. sat with Mr. Stewart to guide us around the snow slide. Under one arm he carried the horn with which he had called us to him. It came from some long-horned cow in Mexico and was beautifully polished and had a fancy rim of silver. I should like to own it, but I could not make it produce a sound. When we were safe on our way, our guide left us and our spirits ran high again. The horses were feeling good also, so it was merry. It was a merry laughing party that drew up before Zebby's two hours later. Long before I had lent Gavotte a set of the leather stocking tails, which he had read aloud to Zebby. Together they had planned a leather stocking dinner at which should be served as many of the viands mentioned in the tales as possible. We stayed two days and it was one long feast. We had venison served in a half dozen different ways. We had antelope, we had porcupine, or hedgehog, as Pathfinder called it. And also we had beaver tail, which he, which he found toothsome, but which I did not. We had grouse and sage hen. They broke the ice and snared a lot of trout. In their cellar, they had a barrel of trout prepared exactly like mackerel, and they were more delicious than mackerel because they were finer grained. I had been a little disappointed in Zebby after his return from home. It seemed to me that Pauline had spoiled him. I guess I was jealous. This time he was the same little old Zebby I had first seen. He seemed to thoroughly enjoy our visit, and I am sure we each had the time of our lives. We made it home without mishap the same day we started, 
all of us sure life held something new and enjoyable after all. If nothing happens, there are some more good times in store for me this summer. Gavat once worked under Professor Marsden when he was out here getting fossils for the Smithsonian Institution, and he is very interesting to listen to. He has invited us to go with him out to the Badland Hills in the summer to search for fossils. The hills are only a few miles from here, and I look forward to a splendid time. The letters of Eleanor Rupert are in the public domain. The music is performed by Pratlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click Support on the main menu to visit the American Epistles Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>